Welcome to another edition of Bitcoin Tech Talk. My name is Jimmy Song, and you can always find this newsletter at jimmysong.substack.com and get it in your inbox every Monday morning at 9 a.m. An epidemic of fakeness, Bitcoin Tech Talk, issue number 266. I recently was discussing masks with some friends of mine. We were discussing how certain businesses required them and how that seemed irrational. Vaccines have been available for many months now, and pretty much anyone that is concerned with infection has already gotten it or isn't going out to places. On the other side of the spectrum, masks have always seemed like an idiotic measure. Masks are a strange requirement since it taxes everyone in terms of time and energy without any obvious benefits. Yet in a strange sort of way, masking makes sense. Many businesses took PPP loans and defying local ordinances may jeopardize their access to free money next time. So businesses are showing their willingness to comply to government mandates using this very simple trick. Sure, it's inconvenient for their customers, but what are customers compared to free money? Masks are a way to show loyalty to their real customer, the government. As a result, we get people pretending that masking is about health when it's really about freshly printed money. Government compliance pays, and if that requires some mental gymnastics, so be it. This is by no means an isolated thing. Almost all government programs have some brain twisting involved. We pre pretend that wars in foreign countries are about freedom and democracy when it's really about making sure we maintain dollar dominance. We pretend that the TSA is about security when it's really a federal jobs program. We pretend that bank bailouts are about the economy when it's really cronyism. This fakeness is everywhere, where people say one thing but mean another. This is polite fiction that is spouted to allow people to live with themselves. In reality, this fakeness is a form of rent-seeking behavior. The most ridiculous and inefficient mandates prove to the authorities a high level of compliance. This epidemic of fakeness is a direct result of fake money. Money printed from nothing costs nothing to make and benefit the people getting stuff for free. Yet to receive that money without any justification is not easy to handle mentally, so the recipients pretend that they've earned it. Compliance and polite fiction are those justifications. Fake money, in other words, induces mental gymnastics. Fake money makes us more fake. We see this not just in fiat money, but in all coins more readily. Everyone pretends that there's some real reason for the pump in random coin excess price, as if there's real utility when there's not. Years, months, or even days later, when the coin quietly loses price and liquidity, nobody will reflect on whether any of those reasons were true. The pumps are artificial, carefully managed through lockups and liquidity management. They're games to attract real resources so money printing schemes can continue. The wheels on this fakeness are starting to come off. We're seeing things that pump that have no basis in reality. It's hard to pretend that Shibu has real utility, harder even than pretending masks do something. Soon we won't be able to pretend anymore, and that's when we'll see the destruction this fakeness has caused. Thankfully, we have Bitcoin. It's the one thing in a sea of fakeness. Proof of work cannot be faked, and real usage is happening. Let's hope this makes people more real as well. All right, so I wrote this um, after, I don't know, reflecting a bit on what's going on. And it's uh, it's kind of sad, right? Like how, how much people are sort of like speaking like in 1984, right? Like the, the book, um, you know, lots of doublespeak, lots of 
saying one thing but meaning something else and thinking one thing but saying something else and so on. It's uh, it, it, it feels like everything is just completely artificial and there's reasons for this. It, it, it's hard to handle mentally. Um, you know, this idea that you are a rent seeker, but, you know, if you pretend that it's about health or something like that, it's a lot easier to handle and, uh, and, you know, say something about or uh, to go on pretending and so on. Um, I really hope that, uh, you know, some of this goes away as fiat money goes away. And I, I believe that it will. Um, and that's, that's why I wrote that article. It's just, I'm so sick of this vagueness. All right, let's talk about Bitcoin. Taproot is live. Uh, AJ Towns has a nice graphical view of nodes that I've upgraded to Taproot. Andrew Chow has a vanity ad address generator for pay to Taproot. It's been a long time coming, and it's still a little strange to think that it's all live on mainnet. I've been in the process of coding this stuff in my library, and I'm discovering how cleverly it's designed. For example, the mass tree combines child hashes lex lexicographically sorted, so it's a lot easier to code than the Merkle root in BIP37. It'll be interesting to see how quickly Taproot gets adopted given all the backup possibilities. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm really kind of having to deeply understand Taproot now that I'm having to code it. Um, and uh, ask any coder, that's when they really understand something. You can understand things at a conceptual level, but, you know, when it gets down to the nitty gritty and you have to code something and write the actual function and stuff like that, that's when you know you understand it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm starting to really deeply understand Taproot and it is really clever. It is well done. And... Uh, you know, there, there's a whole thing with a control block and tap script that's in there and, um, you know, the, the elements that you put on top and uh, very well designed uh, and combined with Schnorr signatures. It's uh, it's it's it, it makes for a lot of different backup possibilities. So one of the first things I'm going to expect is that you're going to have a, uh, you know, a taproot spend that you're going to normally use. Uh, but as a backup, um you know, designating three friends or something like that and saying if two of three of my friends uh, that don't know each other, um, you know, if I ask for, you know, certain key material from them, I can I can recover my coin, something to that effect. That way um, you have a backup to your stuff and it doesn't cost you anything on chain. It's uh, it's there in case you need it. It's it's this, uh, you know, uh, taproot tree that has a whole bunch of uh, different scripts in there um, that can get executed, but only sort of like if you if you need it. Uh, otherwise, like no one knows about it. Your friends don't even have to know about it. They could give you their public keys and that would be enough. <laughs> and as long as you have uh, enough material for them to recover it, then that that may be a thing. So, um, you know, very interesting idea. Uh, and I, I hope that uh, that people use it as we go forward. And Moonwaller wrote about uh, wrote on how they upgraded their app to use Taproot. The article is less about Taproot than it is about the problem of backups. As they point out, wallets have little interoperability and a huge and add a huge burden to users when they're creating new wallets to back up everything. Output descriptors make it possible to have the same wallet in multiple places and further reduce the need to create new wallets. They made it possible to back up Taproot outputs before anyone spent any money to them. I love what they're doing, and I hope they continue pushing the UX of Bitcoin Wallet. So Moon Wallet has the reputation of being one of the best user experience wallets because 
not only can you take uh, Bitcoin on chain, but they have like seamless integration with Lightning, which is uh, wonderful because you can you can just go and uh, you know, like do lightning transactions without knowing necessarily that you're doing lightning. Uh, but they, they also have this uh, innovative backup system. Now, I, I'm not necessarily like a complete fan of what how, how they're doing it, but the idea is that they encrypt a bunch of stuff to another backup. So it's like a two of two backup kind of. Um, but, you know, you, you leave one, uh, one piece of it online somewhere, like on a Google Drive or Dropbox or something like that. And you need the other piece to unlock the other uh, the the piece that's uh, you know living out there on the internet. So, uh, but the innovative thing that they're doing here is that before any taproot addresses have been made, they send out uh, they they've encrypted all this data um, uh, already, so that however much you spend from now on, um, you know it's all backed up. And uh, and this is you know the the idea behind Bit thirty two, Bit forty four, all of the hierarchical deterministic wallets. Most of you probably um, use the mnemonic backups as a way to do that. Uh, but th this is better, especially for multi-sig and things like that, because it has all of the output descriptors and so on. So you could take advantage of a lot of the multi-sig capabilities that are out there um, instead of you know these uh, seed, uh, seed word backups where determining exactly where your funds are is not easy um, and requires you know, hiring people like me to go find. All right, let's uh, let's talk about covenants. Uh, Jeremy Rubin and Andrew Polster had an interesting debate about covenants at TabConf. The rules of the Socratic village meant that the thing couldn't be recorded, and thus the link uh, goes to the next best thing, a transcript. The main debate was around the type of covenants in Bitcoin rather than whether to have them. Covenants let you encumber the coins in the future, and something called recursive covenants let you almost permanently encumber coins. As Jeremy's CTV proposal specifically avoids recursive covenants, Andrew's argument was that a more general covenant proposal that handles recovenant covenant, uh, recursive covenants would be better. So um, if you're not familiar with covenants, it's this idea that instead of like spending your coins and at that point the person receiving them can do whatever they want with it, you restrict the coins as you pay them. So it's like, um, all right, I'm going to pay it to you, but you can't have them until this particular day. We can already kind of do that, right? With check lock time, verify or check sequence. I verify, it's, you uh, You know, this these coins uh, are going to you, but after a certain amount of time, or these coins are going to you, but only if they go to these particular addresses or these going coins are like, it's, it's a restriction on the, uh, on the money that are being given. And there are all sorts of use cases like this. The idea of a recursive covenant is this, uh, is that it, it continues to be encumbered essentially forever. And Andrew's point in this debate is that it's very easy to get into sort of like recursive covenant mode. So we should actively think about it and generate something that does that rather than avoiding it as CTV does. So that it, it's kind of a subtle argument, but I think it's well worth reading. Um, Jameson Lopp did another round of physical tests on seed storage devices. Manufacturers have done much better than before as they've all learned that a single plate is the way to go. Less moving parts seem to make um, for a more durable device. I hadn't heard of a lot of these devices before, but they're clearly designed much better than the devices even a couple of generations prior. So it used to be that, uh, you know, like they, they had one where you, you had all these different letters in like a big pile and you had to fit them into 
something and then you, you can put your seed phrase and then lock it up or whatever. It turns out that you get catastrophic loss if it, if it has any sort of like trauma, uh, like if it gets dropped or gets rolled over by a car or something like that, all the letters just sort of like plop out and then you, you basically had catastrophic loss of your, uh, of your seed phrase. Um, the way to do it, it seems, is uh, have a single plate and etch something on it or punch holes in it or something like that. Then it's a lot easier to recover. And, uh, and that's what manufacturers have discovered is that less moving parts, less things that jiggle around or whatever tends to be better. And that's what uh, and Jameson's latest test. It's like almost all of them have a single plate and you either inscribe something to them, punch holes in them or something like that. But it's, it, it remains a single thing. All right, let's talk about Lightning. Lightning Labs has their always informative newsletter. The most interesting part of the newsletter was the discussion of the utility to speculation ratio. I would characterize a high utility to speculation ratio as being low in hopium and the opposite, high in hopium. Lightning is one of the lowest in hopium, unlike almost all of the altcoins, uh, all of the altcoin world. The idea behind this idea, uh, this uh, utility to speculation is, okay, how many people are actually using it versus how many people are speculating on it? Uh, Lightning, most people are using it. Very few people are speculating on it. With altcoins, it's the opposite. So they, they were contrasting that especially to a lot of DeFi stuff, uh, which way more people are speculating on than actually using. All right, uh, Business Insider has an in-depth feature on Lightning, Plebnet, and El Salvador. This was a surprisingly well-done article in a mainstream publication about Lightning, getting a lot of subtleties right that most mainstream articles get wrong, so I was pretty impressed. They specifically talked about how plebs are leading the way in Lightning adoption instead of focusing on a specific hero CEO, as most of these articles do. I suspect it's hard to deny the power of Bitcoin, or we have a Bitcoin enthusiast as, at these publications, which is turning the narrative. So almost always, if you read these articles, they're, they're focused around the hero CEO or a hero employee or something like that. Instead, this one's very much focused on the plebs, and uh, I, I really appreciated sort of like uh, you know, capturing the global nature of, of this thing, how people are running their own nodes and figuring sort of things out with each other. And it's not necessarily a, a story about some hero that's uh, able to do something. It's just about an ordinary pleb that's, uh, you know, going around and doing things on the Lightning Network. So really appreciated that article. Reusable invoices are merged into LND. I'm excited for this update as this would allow for recurring payments. So much of the utility of Lightning depends on frequent payments and recurring payments seem like an obvious missing feature. I would love to see Patreon replaced with Lightning payments, for example. So uh, reusable uh, invoices uh, mean that you can use the same invoice to pay the same note over and over again. Invoices naturally expire but having a reusable invoice allows uh, multiple, uh, you know, like payments to the same nodes. And uh, and that could be very useful for something like, you know, uh, something in, like pay, uh, Patreon where, you know, people are getting paid, but then they get the platform because Patreon gets pressure from the U.S. government or something like that. Or, hey, like we, uh, Saudi Arabia threatens them and they shut it off in Saudi Arabia. That That's all like it, it all. Uh, Patreon works all on the fiat monetary system. With Lightning, you don't need anyone's permission. So that that's the key to making it work. Um, I would love to see something like that happen for all of these, uh, you know, people that honestly like suffer from injustice, right? Like, uh, and they get kicked off of platforms and no one's allowed to do a Kickstarter for this person because, 
you know, they, they ran afoul of uh, some political ideology or something like that. All right, economics, engineering, etc. Alex Gladstein has a tremendous long read about USA's monetary imperialism. It will be hard to look at US foreign policy any other way after reading this. The article is based on his reading of the book Super Imperialism, which is focused on international monetary policy and how the dollar is used to get resources from other countries. This is an excellent article to learn how the dollar is a tool of foreign policy. So, uh, you know, he, he it's a very long read um, and you know, I help review it. So. It, it, you know, I, I had to. I, I got a preview of everything, but basically, it, it talks about all of the ways in which the dollar is used, essentially, for uh, sort of oppressing other countries and extracting resources. If you think about it, every time the U.S. runs like a trade deficit of some kind, they're essentially saying we're giving you our printed money for your goods and services. It's basically stealing. So. Um, if you look at it from that lens, it's hard to come away thinking that the U.S. dollar is a good thing internationally. We're, we're essentially able to extract resources from all over the world, uh, essentially for free. And, you know, the, the book uh, Super Imperialism essentially argues that the Vietnam War wasn't paid by the U.S. government. It was paid by everybody uh, because they were able to impose the costs uh, of that inflation on other central banks. And they, in turn, had to inflate their own currency to keep up and essentially steal from their uh, their people. So it, it, like, it's interesting how monetary policy basically ends up linking everybody together. Um, so very interestingly read. Um, Jameson Law finally gets justice against the guy who sent the SWAT team to his house. I found the article both sad and hopeful. It was sad because it really does show the asymmetry and destructive actions like calling a SWAT team, which is ultimately the result of public services. I also found it hopeful because with enough determination, Jameson was able to get justice. So if you don't know about this story, he uh, he had uh, somebody called the SWAT team to his house. He ended up basically, um, you know, like selling his house, like going away, like he rebuilt his entire life around like privacy. And he did like Wyoming LLCs and all this other stuff to uh, to basically get himself as much privacy as possible. So something like that couldn't happen again. Um but in the meantime, he pursued justice against this guy, turned out to be a minor, some guy that didn't even know who Jameson was and did it as sort of like a prank because his friends didn't like Jameson or something to that effect. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a sad story, but it's also hopeful. But there, it's, it's crazy that he spent that much. He had to spend so much money in order to pursue justice against this guy who, you know, was able to essentially force him to spend this much money but with like one one or two phone calls. All right, uh, Vizio makes more money from ads than it does TVs. Um, this is what happens uh, with persistent inflation, which is that companies find alternate uh, alternative ways to make up for the value loss. Instead of increasing the price of their products, they've been selling your information. In other words, because of inflation, companies are incentivized to be evil. Speaking of which, Joe Malik explains how inflation really wrecks people. As the article points out, inflation affects goods before, way before wages, causing the vast majority of people to lose out. The narrative of the media that inflation is somehow a good thing is something that needs to be countered, and we need more articles like this. So I found that first article extremely disturbing and interesting at the same time. Um, the, the thing about inflation is that 
manufacturers are always going to be very hesitant to raise prices because when you raise prices, you get consumer revolt. They're not going to want to buy from you and you get really bad reviews on all your products and things like that. Um, so they, they will do almost anything to not raise prices. And one of the ways in which you can do that is by essentially selling customer information and stuff like that. So you're... Your TV might cost $500, but Vizio is recouping like $200 of that by selling advertising based on your viewing habits and stuff. Um, all, all of this stuff is essentially calling home and this is what you're agreeing to when you get your cheap TV or whatever. Um, so you you really need to be like careful about this stuff, right? Like, are, is this the right trade-off that you're making? And I, I find this to be abhorrent. I, I'm never buying a Vizio TV. In fact, I'm like kind of suspicious of my Samsung TV that I have at home right now. So, yeah, you got you got to be very careful about this stuff. Um, but yeah, one of the one of the persistent uh, effects of inflation is that it does make companies evil. Congo is starting to get a Bitcoin economy going. It's hard not to see the parallels of Congo with what's happening in El Salvador. The banking services provided by Bitcoin are an obvious benefit to displaced people like the ones in the article. And I hope this helps them get back on their feet. Perhaps in the not too distant future, Bitcoin will prevent refugee crises from happening, from becoming so terrible and allowing people to start new lives in better jurisdictions without the need to go broke in between. Um, and this is one of the tragedies of any refugee crisis is that it's very hard to take your money with you. Um, uh, you know, anytime you cross a border, they're going to take anything of value from you physically. So gold is not really an option. Currency is not really an option. Um, Bitcoin is uh, one of the first ways that you can just sort of like leave an area and not look back and still have uh, like not have to go broke in between. And uh, and, you know, we're, we're seeing that in some of these uh, these for for a lot of these displaced people, it's becoming something of a lifeline and uh, allowing them to get access to banking services. And think about the life of a refugee. You don't necessarily have identification or anything like that. So how are you going to open a bank account? How are you going to start a business? Um Bitcoin is providing a way out for those people. And I, I, I find that incredibly hopeful. Uh, the city of Miami is going altcoin. The cities that have benefited the most from the pandemic have undoubtedly been Austin and Miami. While Mayor Suarez have been very, um, uh, has been very welcoming of Bitcoiners, this latest move shows that he really doesn't have a clue about Bitcoin's real value or altcoin scamminess. In a sense, this was inevitable as Miami has been the relocation city of choice for all coiners while Austin has been for Bitcoiners. Let's see what happens over the next few years. So this is, of course, about Miami coin and how uh, Suarez seems to be embracing it and paying people in it. And I don't know, it, it's, it's such an obvious affinity scam, right? Like every, everyone there is like, oh, no, it's actually built on Bitcoin or whatever. No, you're creating your own token, printing your own money. You're making your own money. Uh, you're you're being your own central bank. There's, and any business model can work when you can print your own money, uh, as long as the money holds value. That's uh, that that's the rub. So, yeah, I, I I don't think that's a good idea, and it just sort of proves that Miami is becoming all coin central. Well, Bitcoin is Bitcoin central. All right, some quick hits. Uh, did you know you can sign messages using your SSH keys? I did not know that before, and that's a, that's a very useful thing. Um, PGP is very difficult to use. SSH keys, at least if you're using GitHub or something like that, you need to already be familiar with it. And if you can sign messages, it's a much shorter signature than something on PGP. 
multi-sig save one Bitcoiner from losing his Bitcoin. So this was like a robbery or something like that. And he had multi, uh, he had a multi-sig setup, so the robbers couldn't take his Bitcoin. So very good. Um, and that's something that everyone should strive for. Protos has a report on where Tether is going. Um, so it's a report on like who owns Tether, who's redeeming Tether and stuff like that. Gives you a good idea of what the economics of Tether are like. Um, very uh, interesting. I encourage you to read that as well. Tomer Strolight argues that benefits of Bitcoin are things money can't buy. Um, and most of that is, you know, like there, there's a tendency to think that money can solve everything when you're in a fiat money society because that's what the government does, right? Like if they see a problem, it's like throw money at it and that's supposed to solve the problem. Uh, but there are certain things that just money can't solve, um, you know, like uh, if, if you want friends or community or low time preference or character or things like that, th those can't be bought with money. You can certainly try, um, I guess. And if you have the will for it, then maybe you can help to hire a coach that can uh, help instill that. Uh, but but these are not things money necessarily can buy. And that's uh, that's, you know, good insight from his article over there. Um, some events I am going to, I'm planning to be in London for the Advancing Bitcoin Conference, March 3rd and 4th, but there is some possibility I won't be able to get into the UK, in which case that would have to get canceled. I'll also be doing the Programming Blockchain Seminars in London, March 1st and 2nd, and uh, Miami, April 4th and 5th, and I forgot to add in the newsletter, I, I am announced for Bitcoin 2022 in Miami. I will be at the conference, and um, hopefully I'll have my new book out by then, but yeah, um, some podcasts and stuff on this week's Bitcoin fixes this. I talked to Gary Leland about opportunity. He has been a serial entrepreneur starting a wide variety of businesses. And we talked about how he found them, uh, find out why he thinks Bitcoin has so many opportunities. So not many people know this, but he's actually like, uh, you know, he, he did a, you know, like uh, wallpaper business and a softball equipment business, like multi-million dollar stuff. Um, before he did like a podcasting like conference and now he does like Bitcoin conferences and stuff like that. He's also written like 19 books. Yeah, the, the guy's lived a long life. Uh, he calls himself the Bitcoin boomer for a reason. Uh, but but uh, it, it was an interesting conversation and his perspective on it is like, you know, there, there's always opportunity. And uh, and it's it, if you if you just know where to look like and and you, you see uh, sort of like a little bit ahead you can you can always find those opportunities and make a lot of money from them. So I thought that would be a good encouragement for all those, you know, millennials and younger out there that are looking for uh, ways to you know earn Bitcoin. Basically, um, I read through last week's newsletter. Um, I had uh, my interview from the Texas Blockchain Summit is up, and I also talked to Natalie Brunel about Taproot for Bitcoin Magazine. I talked to Jay Gold about a variety of Bitcoin topics on his uh, on his show. And of course, my book, uh, my latest book is Thank God for Bitcoin. And my other books are The Little Bitcoin Book and Programming Bitcoin, all of which are available on Amazon. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this newsletter. I'm an advisor and proud to be a, a part of a company that's enhancing security for Bitcoin holders. If you need multi-sig collaborative custody or Bitcoin native financial services, learn more at Unchained.com. All right, that's about it for now. Fiat the Lenda Est. This song is done.